You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Axel Schutz, who started and successfully exited four companies, the biggest reaching $5 billion in revenue, and the second close to $1 billion. Axel is a published author, a patent holder, in 2015 listed in the Global 100 Most Influential Startup Accelerators, which he started. In 2008, he won the SF Entrepreneur Award. 2006, he chaired the SAS Channel Committee at the SIIA. And in 2003, he was an early advisor of LinkedIn. On today's show, we talk about what questions should one ask themselves or what brainstorming should be done before starting a company. What is the best advice for someone who plans on starting and growing a billion-dollar company with their significant other? And why does brainstorming to create a billion-dollar idea seem to fail when it's done in a corporate setting, but thrive when it is done by a startup? This and much more today's episode. And remember, you can follow me at Sean Flynn SV on Twitter and like and subscribe to this show and share in your network. It encourages us to create more content just like this. All right, now let's start this amazing episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Axel, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, you were introduced by a mutual friend of ours, George Parrish. He said some amazing things about you. So I'm really excited about this interview. Before we even start, can you give our audience a little bit of background of your career up until this point? Happy to be here, Sean. This is great. This is actually really amazing for me. I started my career actually as a, you know employee like many others in a large company, Rockwell International. This idea while running distribution to change the model of distribution. Because most distributors sell direct and indirect and to everybody and so on. And most of the resellers and system integrators, they feel basically a competition by their main supplier. I thought, no, this is not right. And I went to my boss and said, hey, I think we, we need to change distribution. I was just about to tell him how are we going to do this? And he says, Axel, you are totally insane. Distribution is a 5,000-year-old business interwoven across the globe. And you want to change it? I mean, you are crazy. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, God, you know, bummer. I had this amazing idea. And then next day, I thought, no, this is a great idea. It doesn't matter. If it goes south, then I will still try to do it. Fast forward, I left my dream job, actually. I mean, I had an extreme steep career. I moved on to starting that company. And I went to my boss and said, you know, it's crazy, but I still try it and I want to quit. And he said, what? Okay, so are you serious about that? And I said, yeah, I'm serious. And then happened something very interesting. He said, you know, do you have investors? I said, yeah, I have some savings, but not really investors. Huh. I could imagine actually investing. And I thought, wow, <laughs> you think this is crazy, but now you're thinking investing. The irony is that he and somebody else thought this is totally insane. Both invested. A year later, he actually joined <laughs> the team and the other two. The idea was having a very, very robust, but back then, even the term didn't exist, disruptive business model. We did that for six months. 
And then sort of, you know, reality caught up with us. And indeed, because of the model, we didn't make enough margin to actually to sustain the whole business. Two founders then said, hey, actually, you know, come on, go with the mainstream. And like everybody else, I said, no, I didn't quit this job for, for running just an ordinary distributor. Really, last minute, we got this one order from a large company who said, okay, so I'll try your strategy and help you because he w- wouldn't want to, s- to buy direct, indirect. And so we got this order. I gave it to one of the resellers. Little did I know that this reseller was actually on the board of the IBM Reseller Association. And so he was blown away. What? Thousand graphics cards. I mean, this was a huge deal back then. I said, yeah, I promised we don't go direct. A week later, there was a dealer association meeting. He must have explained it to the rest of the gang. And all of a sudden, orders came in like, you know, it was like a movie. I mean, nobody could <laughs> write a, a script better than that. The company grew and grew and grew. IPO in 1996 at $5 billion in revenue. Later on, we merged with Tech Data. It was a merger under Equals at $7 billion in revenue. So the combined company was 12, something like that. And today it's 37 and a half billion. I just checked. <laughs> the impossible thing actually became a $37 billion company, global leader in tech distribution. No tech product, basically, but distribution. So it was this pure business model case. So I exited, had fun in my life, you know, with everybody else doing crazy things, throwing around with money, which is totally stupid, but you know, you do that. And then I started a new company. And this was in 90, actually, this was in 1996. So the other was a little before. This was right when the internet popped up. We focused on internet security because we thought, I mean, this will be probably a big deal. And so today, this company is 750 million in revenue. And we, I stepped down, I think, like four years into it and let my co-founder run it, move to the States. One thing was interesting in between. We were looking for funding. And I promised to my one of my VCs that uh, you know if if I'm starting something new, I will talk to him. And I said, okay, so I do my promise. I talk to you, and I tell you, unfortunately, we're not raising venture capital money, but we want to do a crowdfunding campaign. And he said, what is a crowdfunding campaign? I said, I don't know. And I probably used a different word because it didn't really exist. But we wrote basically a web page with forms that investor could. Yeah, I want to invest and I want to invest so and so much. It was meant to be for our business partners, maybe interested in investing. Two did, but we got about 100 other investors. The interesting thing was after, I think, three months, somebody called me and said, Hey, uh, Mr. Schultz, I bought these shares, but uh, I just read that this is not even on a stock exchange. And I know that I signed up for it, but can you do me a favor? I need to get rid of it because my husband is terribly crazy about this. I should not have done it and so on. I said, absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll buy it back and we're done. Thought, okay, I, I ask a couple investors just to be fair that I'm not sort of, you know, buying back stuff without them knowing. And somebody said, Hey, why don't you put this up on the web? People can basically bid on it. She makes even a profit. Did. Voila, we had our first digital stock exchange. <laughs> Six months later, the authorities came and said, no way. (laughs) We said, okay, hmm, uh, this is bad because we had 600 investors by then. 
I went to my lawyer and he said, before I get involved, because this would be a law fight, you know, you don't want to have. You ask her, what is actually the exact paragraph where she relates to what is illegal in this case? I thought, ah, interesting question. And so I called her and she said, well, unfortunately, there is none. <laughs> so we're actually not really illegal yet, but she will need to do everything possible to make it illegal. And I said, okay, can we operate till then? And she said, you know what? Probably yes. Even your help to tell me a little bit more what you do. And so we negotiated a deal that we could run the, the stock exchange, so to speak, for a year with a special permission. And I told the, the team of, of her, I told her everything, how we do it, how the transactions work, how the market maker function works, and all these kind of details. The company then to the largest stockbroker in Germany and focused on, my, you know, on the company that we were actually funding. That was an amazing ride. And I think it's still the question is, what did I do? Went to California. And that was always my dream. I mean, running a company in Silicon Valley. And so the dream was about a technology that we developed already in Germany of handling business partners on a digital kind of platform. Try to get Citrix and a couple of companies in Germany. And they said, nah, you know, headquarters say, nah, we will do this in the US and blah, blah, blah. And so I said, you know what? This is exactly what I needed to hear. My wife and we discussed, you know, shall we go to the US now? Yep, let's do that. And so we moved over in 2000. It was right after the bubble crashed. And we said, okay, we'll still give it a try. Then we were running for funding basically uh, about a year later. And the first meeting was on September 11. And so you can imagine what that kind of... We knew there is no funding for a long time. So we had a bootstrap. And uh, then some of the investors said, you have actually two problems. One, you're not a Silicon Valley person. So you will have to develop another level of trust before you get money. And these days, nobody has money. But the third one, which I didn't tell you in the beginning, is you have two, invest, uh, two competitors. One has $68 million in the bank from pre-bubble IPO. The other had from pre-bubble fundraising, $58 million in the bank. I mean, they're blowing you away just by the sheer capital they have. <laughs> so I thought, all right, we still go bootstrapping. I mean, I heard this is impossible before. And for me, it became almost my personal hashtag impossible. I really respond to it. <laughs> we knew that we had something special and we knew most people wouldn't really understand. Probably lack of communication. We built this apparatus of lead management and everything. About three years into it, we realized, okay, we're, I mean, two years, we're really on a great trajectory. Actually, fundraising was in this scenario, not a real big problem. So people actually said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, interesting and so on. We grew it to number one. So we were, became market leader in that space. And then the investors had a little bit of different opinion how it goes forward. I thought, mm, maybe we were successful together. So maybe now we can all be successful each other alone. I stepped actually down, didn't want to follow their advice. And, but you know that's often the case. That was my fourth company, actually. Kind of retired. I mean, we... We did retire for a year, which was nothing good for me. And though we helped startups. So we started in 2014 then. 
San Francisco building Accelerator and help basically scale up startups. So not the, the very early stage, but those who already had maybe a seed funding around or so and help them to, to succeed. And this was actually really fun. Also, in retrospect, there was a company called um, back then, it was Dr. Dice. Now the, the URL is simply doc.com. It's sort of a doctor, it's a medical platform. as uh, so, a so unicorn in, in Mexico and is now entering the US and so on. That's a very cool story and a couple of others. And that is basically my, more or less my previous life, so to speak, or my past life. But one of the things was interesting. Somebody asked me, Axel, where did all these ideas coming from? So I need to know, tell me. And I realized I can't really answer it. It was very difficult. Well, that's a story we'll probably talk later. But uh, that is sort of my, uh, yeah, my life. <laughs> Axel, I have to go back to that one moment. It seems like a pivotal point in your life when your boss had actually laughed at you when you brought that idea, but then you came back and you said, I still want to do this. Most entrepreneurs, most people, I would say, if their boss laughed at them, they would go home, think it was a dumb idea, maybe have a few drinks, and then just continue with life for the next 40 years working under that person. What was different inside of you to go back the next day? It wasn't quite the next day because I went home, like I said, <laughs> took a beer, was frustrated, and think I don't do it. <laughs> And it was a couple of days in and out and thinking, is this really st- dumb or not? And I personally found it totally logical. But I also realized, you know, it's between logic and what is possible in a world is different. I simply try to weigh between, okay, if this goes wrong, what would I do then? Well, I probably would look for a job again. And if it goes right, obviously, that would be cool. And then there was one person, and I honestly don't remember who, who that was. But this is the one where I heard this phrase the first time. The worst thing you can do in your life is not trying. And that triggered me to think, oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, at least trying. If I don't try, I will never know. I will probably die wondering, well, what would I have done 60 years ago when I had this idea? <laughs> so that was actually the, the main trick. All these companies that you started, I mean, you had success after success after success. What questions were you asking yourself or what brainstorming did you do before finally jumping in and starting them? Most people have an idea, I believe. Also, when I talk to startups, and then they kind of rush into making this a reality. We had in the first company, for instance, Computer 2000, we had about four months meetings. We call this EAF meetings or something like is action standing on your own feet. One of my partners said, you know, the idea is, I mean, substantial. But if we don't make it perfect, and we are all trained to not go for perfect, but for 80-20 rule. But he said, we need to break this rule and we need to make it perfect. And so we called it the DeBear process. You know, DeBear's the, 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 the diamond guys, you know, polishing the idea until it's really perfect. Nobody can crack it. And so... That's what we did, and it worked well. And I simply kept to this metaphor of polishing to perfection before you actually go. I think it was my third company, and I always had sort of not doubts per se, but respect for what may come. Well, I always worked on it to the point where I said, "Okay, 
if I cannot come up with a problem that is unsolvable going forward and will break the company, then I should not start. And but if I have a situation where I cannot even imagine that this is not working, well, then go for it. And, and that's what I did. I mean, I had tons of ideas, but many were kind of weak or not really well thought out. Or, and it didn't, didn't resonate enough for me to say, yeah, this is what I want to do. For instance, the counter to it is a company I'm, we're just starting. I mean, my wife and myself. And when I thought through the things, I mean, I'm now, you know, much older and I couldn't come up with a single reason why this is not flying. And I thought, okay, is this one of those again? <laughs> we give it a shot. And I mean, basically one year into it from the first idea, uh, let alone from, you know, doing first things, totally excited. <laughs> Now, of these companies that you started, from my understanding, three out of four of them, you co-founded them with your wife. And yeah. I mean, I've talked to many venture capitalists that maybe not publicly, but at least over drinks or dinner will say, you know, they don't want to invest in husband and wife or partner companies, but you broke the norm. Can you tell us about that? It was breaking the norm. And funny enough, it's even breaking my own norm. I would be very, very cautious <laughs> investing in a, in a husband and wife kind of startup because usually, or not usually, but oftentimes it's just not working. I mean, there's, there, there's too much conflicts and potential for conflicts and so on. But in our particular case, I mean, we came both from an entrepreneurial family. We both know that if there is time, we do the craziest things in the world. And if not, then we simply don't. We work our butt off you know, whatever it takes. Uh, we had sort of the same experience in that regard. We're also the same type of people where we don't have the, the leadership ego like, oh, no, 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 it's my company. No, it's, I mean, without me, you could never do that. I mean, all this kind of stuff never happened. And uh, so we know it's working. On the pro side, I mean, we're working like 12 hours, 14 hours a day, every day. Uh, we're 14 hours together. There, there's never the moment are you coming home? Dinner is ready. <laughs> you know, the kids are waiting. I mean, all these things. And this makes a huge difference. So if the couple is good, I mean, if it's a real good relationship, I think it will work. And if not, it will break. I mean, and so we said, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. Works brilliantly. I, I would not even consider doing it without her because there's so many things that I couldn't do alone. I mean, it, you have a sparring partner who goes deeper in your mind than you yourself and stuff like that. So, so that's a good thing. Could I actually ask a little bit deeper that how does that, how is the work dynamics when the company is very small, when the bosses are together? How does that dynamic look for the company as a whole, starting off and as it grows? I mean, employees like, okay, <laughs> is this really good? And, you know, who is it, the real boss? The question that you try to navigate pretty quickly. It's interesting. I mean, and, and this is something we experience, I have to say, over almost all the companies. After a while, either they never realized that we we're together, but in, in those cases where they did, they realized, okay, everybody, every of these two guys have a very particular strength and very particular weaknesses, and they seem to augment this of each other. And when additional co-founders come to play, which always happened as well, 
kind of similar, but they realize very quickly, no, this is actually a well done couple. And, you know, we don't argue with each other. I mean, we, we discuss things. I mean, everybody has their opinion, but it's not like, ah, <laughs> it works after a while. So I think there is a certain moment in the beginning where it might be a little bit weird for new employees, but once they get over it or once they heard, it's actually cool. No problem at all. And now after all these companies, you're really excited about how the human mind works and how ideation and learning is done. What triggered you to even think about it? And what have you discovered in your research thus far? Trigger was really some of my, 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 these people who asked me, how, how did you come up with these ideas? And I had no answer. I mean, I had the generic answer. You know, you need to be open-minded. You need to think out of the box grab the stars. and I mean, all these things that we hear more or less every day and every time. The thing is that when somebody wants sort of a recipe, so what do I do physically to do this or that? And then I realized, so if somebody says, how do you hold a very thin glass? I could explain, grab it, but be very careful that you don't break it. You sense it with your fingers. And so I could explain even a difficult process. But I cannot or nobody could or cannot explain in your neurons up there. You know, you tell some of your neurons, you know, you look in the further back side of your brain <laughs> into these cells and maybe they can find something. It is very difficult because the brain obviously is the only organ and the only mechanic that we have that we're not controlling like anything else. We can control every muscle. I mean, I learned from my son. A single muscle can be trained, which I thought this is crazy in itself. With the brain, this is more difficult. I, I started to learn about neuroscience and how one branch of the neuroscience is actually working on thinking and learning and not so much about ideation, but I learned then later on that ideation and learning is almost the same process in our brain. For me, it was just, I mean, a fully, completely new, fascinating world. I mean, it's like, know people who never were diving or never skydiving or never in the universe so to speak i mean flying to the moon i mean these experiences for me was like having the experience with my own mind or learning how this works a couple of discoveries was number one which was i think fascinating and i argued for a while that humans are not actually literally creative we're composing ideas from past experiences. So if you see a particular animal, let's say a tiger, a frog, you can imagine taking the frog legs to the tiger and you have a tiger with frog legs. So that's the degree of composition. But if you take something else that you have never seen or never experienced, you cannot assemble it because our mind cannot comprehend the unknown. And that is the best proof that our mind is actually not able to create anything, but compose almost everything possible. And so if we think about composition of our past experiences, the interesting thing was, and this was for, mo for me actually the most stunning discovery, if we have all the ideas that we have based on previous experiences, and there's nothing and absolutely nothing coming in randomly or divine or, or anywhere, then the saying, if you can think it, you can make it, is absolutely real. 
and there is a hundred percent real proof because everything we think we compose from past experiences. And so if we have past experiences about whatever, they were real. And if you put two real things together, it might be something else, but it's possible to do that. If we think we could do XYZ and ABC, and if we could become a manager or if we could become an entrepreneur or a musician or you know whatever it is, it is actually possible because our mind would not be able to compose the idea if it's not something that, that is actually realistic. I realized that if you can think it, you can make it. It's actually no longer just a motivational sentence, you know, give it to me. <laughs> but it is something possible because the way our neurons and our whole brain is structured. And so this drove me, obviously, to the max, I have to say. Now I wanted to find out what stimulates these neurons to have these compositions. When do they have it? How do they have it? what actually communicates in your mind to make this all work out. We learn, for instance, I mean, almost all of us, that we have a right brain half and a left brain half. One is the creative part and one is the logical part. And then the question for me was, okay, but how does this communicate? And, you know, there's a mechanism in our brain. It's called corpus callosum. These are 200 million neurons that, or fibers or axons that connect one brain half with the other. And that is sort of the negotiation path for experiences that allows us to create an idea. Another thing is interesting, that the brain is our most energy-consuming organ. I mean, it's, there's nothing more energy-consuming than the brain. No muscle, no muscle construct, nothing. <laughs> so what it, what it does to protect itself to, from overheating or overly getting overly excited, <laughs> boom, explode, it actually shuts down. Uh, the process when it's too much. And that means, you know, you cannot sit eight hours brainstorming. I mean, you've, you get fully exhausted. You probably fell asleep after five hours or four hours. You can't even keep yourself awake. And the brain stops certain activities when it's too much of associations and findings and search and so on. If you're studying things and learning heavily, you know, the word my brain explodes is very, very real. I mean, it, it seems to be exploding and you get simply super tired. I mean, you cannot blow the fuse, so to speak, but uh, <laughs> because they're inside. I mean, now for entrepreneurs, now we know that there is actually a way to come to deeper ideas. And so one of the things we found was that the, the classic brainstorming, where we sit together, a team, usually no longer than an hour, and we come up with our ideas and everybody else comes up with ideas. About 50% of who's in this room or meeting actually create new ideas based on the inspiration of others. But since the brain has not the capacity to go very deep immediately, because the brain is trained for the last, what is it, two and a half billion years every day, that it's alert, sees danger, reacts immediately, and reacts to the most obvious solution. And this is what it does still today. It looks for the most obvious solution, and that's what it does in a brainstorm meeting. So therefore, the brainstorm meeting cannot come up with groundbreaking ideas, fundamentally different. It comes up with the most obvious answers. Many of them are new for all the participants. And so everybody gets gung-ho and excited and say, hey, yeah, this was a great meeting, all these great ideas. I think this is wonderful. 
but it's not innovative and definitely not disruptive. So what the brain needs is time. And there's another interesting discovery, and we checked this with many teams when we asked. So how many did come to new ideas one or two days after the brainstorm meeting was over? Every group said, oh, yeah, there's, there's always a couple. And I said, yeah, come on. I mean, if, if we would listen to all these, I mean, we would never be finished. We would never be done. No new idea. So we have selected the idea and go with it. Now, the sad part is these new ideas become because the brain continues to work on the question. And so it gets actually deeper. So these new ideas would actually be more valuable than the previous ones. Now, startups, without knowing this, including myself, I mean, we were listening to all these other things. Ah, maybe this is something to polish. And we are back to the DeBero paradigm. We polish it. It even takes six months or three months or two months to polish it to the perfection. And if you don't do that, your idea will never be really, I mean, mind-boggling. It will be still a standard idea. If we now we realize that the brain has another functionality, it's called analogous modeling or analogous thinking. So it looks for analogies, similar things, but from very different areas. We learned this actually in the 1900s around when we began to look how animals fly. And then we we, we thought, okay, if the birds fly that way, maybe we should build the wings of, of the airplanes like that. And so we do this more and more often. And we know this is very powerful. But interestingly enough, we, we look for the nature. Ah, this was a good pattern. So we all look for nature. But what we did not do uh, till today, I mean, now we do, is we look not only in nature, but actually other ideas and put analogous ideas together. And this allows the brain to go even deeper. Obviously, it needs more more ideas, you know, fruit for thought before. And then there's a third element we call the column burst. This is the actually the typical sort of Silicon Valley behavior. What would be ideal? Think about there's no, not, there's all the money you can take. You have all the resources you want. What would you do with it? And that stimulates if the brain is already super active on a topic, it comes up with crazy ideas beyond the normal because we're all trained to not be a dreamer. Come on, be real. You're a man. You're adult now. You know, stop playing. I mean, Every day we heard this until we are truly adults and no more dreamers and got real. And so we need to break this a little bit. And we call this column burst because this is the ultimate negotiation on the corpus callosum between the two brain halves. That even if the idea is almost perfect, now we want to drive it to the basically to the infinite maximum. That discovery basically was for us, I can only tell you, this was a major breakthrough in even in our own mind, I mean, we thought, gosh, I mean, you know, we did some of these, but what could we have done even more in our previous businesses if we had known every, every of these aspects? So, yeah, long answer. Sorry, but this, it, it, it was too fascinating for me to, to not share it. So one of the things that you had mentioned, which I thought was fascinating, was it seems like brainstorming in a corporate setting you don't come up with billion dollar ideas, but in the startup system, you do. Can you dive a little bit deeper into this and maybe give recommendations or suggestions? The ideation process is sort of a very limited time frame, And this has to do with our entire 
I mean, how we get raised, how we get educated, you know, what we learn on the university and so on. We're completely, as humans, conditioned almost more than trained. 80-20 rule, get the job done. Don't take too much time. Don't get crazy. Don't be, you know, too excited and so on and so on. A corporate innovation lab, for instance, and actually I, I talked to one just two hours ago. So the brainstorm meeting over, idea is selected, and then you go with it, period. No discussion. So this corporate and the startup is different. Great idea. Is it really, is this the best we can do? Nah, probably not. Well, let's shape it. And so the ideation process in a startup takes on average, probably I would say four weeks, six weeks, maybe eight weeks. The, the, the founder, I mean, the, the one who had the original idea, and I can just relate to it myself. I thought always, you know, yeah, this was my idea. And then we polished it a bit. But in retrospect, I realized that if this would be it, it would be just yet another ordinary startup, but not these amazing companies that do things that are unexpected for the rest of the world. Because they're, you know, the, the idea may be we build a new keyboard, but then the keyboard, I mean, we all use it and we've got okay with it. Oftentimes you mistype and so on. What would be the ideal keyboard would be probably if I, my intention would already get digitized and the keyboard would put the right keys under my fingers. And then the next guy would say, but come on, if, if the intention is already sort of uh, digitized, we don't need a keyboard. We actually, you know, feed the system. And if we would work long enough on this new keyboard, we probably would eliminate the keyboard, have the same, still the same experience of keying something in, but we would digitize it. And this is the result of polishing and changing and modifying it again and again and again. And there's only a few people who, number one, allow this to be happening. And then there's, even if this isn't okay, then there's still a few, only a few people who wanted to do that way. Because people got so restless of, oh, come on, this is enough. Get, get it done and get over it. And let's, let's, let's move forward and do something. We need to work as one of the other behaviors. I mean, we learn you are successful when you're hardworking. And I always, if people come to me and say, no, you will never be successful if you're hardworking. In the Valley, we know that, you know, work smart and not hard. But that is actually a very fundamental sentence that hasn't been <laughs> populated or propagated in the world. These two organizations work mainly on the whole concept of a new solution in a very different way. Rushing, be professional, don't dream, take your time, even though you don't have any. Stop being professional, but being a dreamer, you know, dream it to the nth degree. And we do this in the, in the program as well. We say, okay, the best thing you can achieve is actually a solution that is impossible to build. Now, everybody would say, are you crazy? Are you wasting my time? Impossible. If you know it's impossible to build, why even go there? But if you would ask Elon Musk, when he thought about what he's building, would he stop when it's impossible to build? Well, the company would never be at the point there it is today. But because it's impossible to build an autonomous car, electric, and everything he kind of dreamed about 10 years ago from today, it was not even a CPU, an AI system that could build an autonomous car. He knew it's happening one day. 
And when I started with C2000, I mean, I know it's happening that the people will take this as the best possible model for distributions. When we started Blue Roads, it was, for me, it was clearly people would one day understand. And there were a couple of things that we couldn't even do back then. But I knew if we work for the next five to 10 years, we will have the solution for doing things. The same as with what we're doing right now. There's a, a whole list of things that is impossible today. I mean, we cannot select the best possible innovative idea today because, you know, innovation, even the best AI system in the world, I mean, even the Google uh, AlphaGo team wouldn't be able to write code that goes into the internet to verify that this is the best possible idea. Because if it would, then it would be a bad idea because it already exists. And if it doesn't exist, it can only say, well, this idea doesn't exist. But whether it's good or not, you know, somebody else needs to do that. And I just listened to one guy talking about AI and said, you know, one of the interesting things is about the human mind. You need to train an AI system with about 100,000 to 1 or even 10 million objects, whatever this pictures, phrases, content of any kind, until the AI system is trained well enough to identify a dog right away. Whether it's a dog in the grass, whether it's a dog amongst sheep, whether it's a dog in the space and whatever it is. The AI system would, after about a million images, it would recognize this is a dog. Now, if you give it to, a, let's say you have a, a, grand, a daughter or, you know, everybody is sort of the three-year-old in your family, and you take the little book and say, ah, oh, look, this is a dog. What is this dog? No, no, this is a cat. And, and you go on and on and on. Within five to 10 tries, a three-year-old knows what a dog is. Five versus a million. So there's something that goes on in our technology up here in the brain that tells us very, very quickly associations that our AI systems, even the best in the world, cannot do. And this is when we also realize, okay, this is a groundbreaking innovation. Even though the system or the product doesn't even exist, but the concept, concept alone helps us to associate this with something, wow. No AI system in the world could do that. But one day, I believe we will be able to also digitize this. How? I have absolutely no clue. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I'm just thinking to myself, wow, I'm smarter than the smartest <laughs> AI machine there. I can't wait to tell the PhD from Stanford that's got a desk down the hall this. But another question for you. I mean, you have this TEDx talk where you give an example of a platypus and a lexicrypt <laughs> to, show, to show imagination. Can you tell us about the results of this talk? It is an interesting result because some people still don't believe that we are not creative. And so it was actually a test where I said, okay, imagine for a moment, you're the most creative person in the world. And so some, some people would say, you know, I'm not. And other people, yeah, that would be cool. Now create something and you're creative. Anything, it doesn't matter. You have the entire free room of the universe. Create something by taking a platypus and a lexicrypt. There's some people who then come up and say, okay, actually, I can imagine a million things around the platypus because I know it's a little animal. It's very rare. It has, a, it has a mouth like a dog. It actually swims underwater and so on. But lexicrypt, I don't know. I mean, and I was, you know, looking at my, my mobile phone, what it is, couldn't find it. You have to explain lexicrypt. And I said, no. 
I mean, if you're creative, you know, just take anything. And people realized it's the back experiences that composes new creative ideas. And if you have one platypus, the little animal, then yes, animal. But Lexicrypt still a no. You cannot connect these two. And so this is sort of my way of testing that every creative idea ever created comes out of past experiences. And if you look at the neurons and these kind of end capsules, the so-called organellus, these are the things where stuff is stored. It's just chemical stuff, mechanics to basically analyze the chemical content. And if it's not an experience, meaning it's not there, also our, our neurons, even if we have 86 billion of them, cannot create anything new. A platypus is... Most people don't even know, not don't even, I mean, it's a very rare animal. They don't know what a platypus is, some do. Lexicrypt is not existing. It was a made up word. And people say, ah, see, this is creative. I said, no, it's L, it's an E, it's an X. <laughs> so it's nothing but composing a new word, Lexicrypt, but it's still letters, it's still a word. The only thing that's missing is the association with something real. And now you're on your fifth company. What's the goals for this? I mean, you've accomplished so much over your career. What do you want to do with this one company? What do you want to solve? The problem that we're trying to solve is a little bit twofold, but one focus is we want to basically realize our, our findings that almost everybody is creative. Innovation, meaning groundbreaking innovation, not just improvement. Is actually possible, quote unquote, on demand. So if somebody says, well, we need innovation or an innovative idea around this or that, customers are unhappy across the board. We know there will somebody accidentally coming up with this idea, but we don't want to wait until our competition comes up. We want to solve it, but we don't have this idea. And if you're not trained for having an idea, then you cannot do it. You have to wait for an accidental idea. And if we look into the number of startups that are even more or less successful, and we divide this to the, by the number of population, 7.5 billion, we come to an interesting number. 0.007 entrepreneurs today of the entire population. So entrepreneurs are extremely rare, their lacking is not energy, it's not intellect, it's not, I mean, none of these things. They're all lacking. And I'm very active on Quora, for instance, and getting these questions. I'm, I'm a 26-year-old, I'm 20, I'm 14, I'm 40, uh, whatever. I want to build my own business, but I don't have an idea. Who can help me? So they're lacking ideas and they're lacking the ability to look at something and say, this is a problem, and they see that, they don't know how to solve it. And so how, would, how cool would it be if those people would say, I, I see this problem, water or you know, new clothes or building new homes or reducing energy or I mean, whatever it is, we have millions of problems. I said, okay, I'll cover this one. I'll take this, you know, this mechanism and come up with the idea. And I'm an entrepreneurial spirit, so I want to build it. And then I simply go and execute. But if you don't have this magical billion-dollar idea, 
it's very difficult. I mean, the starting point is difficult to help. And I you know, I know when we did sort of our, our math, I mean, there are about 150 million companies out there who would need some more, a better innovation. And so that's basically our quote-unquote primary audience. I hate the word target audience. Like, gosh, shooting. <laughs> and with that, Axel, if anyone wants to find out more information about what you're doing, what's the best way to get more information? Well, people would find me probably on LinkedIn. My name is Axel Schultz on bluecolumn.com, our website, blue like blue, and then C-A-L-L-O-M.com. That's probably the best way to reach out anytime. Fantastic. And I want to thank George Parrish one more time for making this introduction that allowed today's episode to happen. And for our audience, please like, subscribe, and send to your network. It encourages us to create great content like this in the future. And once again, Axel, I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you, Sean. It was really amazing. Thank you a lot. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 